Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counsellor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will cut, be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfil your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Well, I'm very relieved to tell you that this oracle of God through uh, Nahum of Elkosh, verse 1, against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, has been fulfilled. Nahum gave this prophecy against Nineveh somewhere around 640 BC, and within a few decades of that, uh, in 612 BC to be precise, Nabopolassar of Babylon, together with the help of uh, the Persians and the Scythians and the Medes, they conquered the great superpower of Assyria and they utterly destroyed its capital, the great city of Nineveh. And so this word of God against his enemies in Assyria has now been fulfilled. And so too, therefore, the occasional words uh, peppered in here about the deliverance of the little nation Judah from, from under the great power and pressure of Assyria, that has also been fulfilled. You see, God had earlier used Assyria uh, for his purposes to bring about judgment uh, on the northern breakaway kingdom of his people in Israel. That was about 80 years before this warning through Nahum. Uh, but Assyria didn't stop there. They could not rein in their lust for conquest and power, and so they came against the southern kingdom of God's people in Judah too. But God was still being patient with Judah at that time, and Assyria was therefore just overstepping its mark. And God's people in Judah, therefore, were suffering under the threat and siege of Assyria's empire building. 
Uh, so if God is going to, to judge Assyria, as Nahum here declares, then it's going to bring relief for Judah. And so there's hints of that here too in the text. The message actually seems to alternate just a little bit uh, between the implications of this oracle, uh, first for, for Assyria and then for Judah. Uh, so if you look at verse 9, for example, that's pitched at Assyria, it seems. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counsellor. That's directed at Assyria. Uh, they have plotted against Yahweh, the Lord, and, and he's going to bring an end to that. That will mean relief for God's people in Judah who've been under pressure from Assyria, as verse 12 then seems to go on. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. When God destroys the evil, evil uh, empire of Assyria, he said, it's going to bring relief for his people who've been under their power. I think those flip side implications run through again in the next two verses. Verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you, i.e. Nineveh again, I think. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile which will mean relief for Judah, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And that's exactly what happened. When God soon after carried out the judgment against Assyria that he warned of here, Judah found relief. And that's the upside of Nahum and the part of all this that I'm glad to be able to share with you today, that the deliverance of Judah from the affliction of Assyria was fulfilled. But otherwise I'm here with what feels like a heavy heart after working through Nahum this past week. And you might feel that heaviness too if you go home and read through the rest of the book. That's the idea of the series, of course. We're just looking at one chapter of each of these minor prophets. Uh, but for you to then go away and try to, try to read through it all, and when you read through Nahum, fair warning, uh, it might leave you with a heaviness. For one thing, there's not much more given on the upside. The relief uh, side of things for God's people. There's another one in chapter 2 and verse 2, if you glance down, but, but from chapter 2 and verse 3, right the way through to the very last verse of this book, the message focuses entirely on the destruction side of things for God's enemies. The second half of that last verse uh, at last does come back to the relief for everyone who Assyria has oppressed. But otherwise, this, this oracle of Nahum is, is heavy with the message of doom for God's enemies. They will be destroyed. And eventually that can start to weigh on you as you read. And a part of you might even grieve for Assyria, wicked as they were. For people to be facing the Lord's judgment is not exactly pleasant stuff to think about. 
And, and the more difficult thing in all of that actually is, is not about Assyria at all being on the end of this doom because their judgment, if you noticed in chapter 1, is only framed within universal truths about God and his enemies, timeless truths set out there in the first part of our chapter. Look again at chapter 1 and verse 2 and, and these universal unchanging realities about God and those who stand against him. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is the God we're talking about who warned Nineveh through Nahum. And do we sit here today and think that he's, he's somehow different today? No, these are universal truths about the one true God. And so the warning of judgment and destruction conveyed here in Nahum is, is still very much alive and relevant today because there are still enemies of God here and there today, aren't there? And sometimes those enemies of God still grieve or afflict God's people too, don't they? Like Assyria and Judah, 2,700 years later, and our current context, I'm sorry, is not as different as we might like to sit here and think it is. Some things have not changed. We might read through Nahum in terms of either the warning to Assyria or the comfort to Judah, I guess. The sheer weight of the text, though, that, that, that is given in Nahum to, to the judgment and the destruction of God's enemies, I'm sorry, it suggests that we should start with that and let most of our focus actually fall on that part of it today. And as I say, it's not pleasant. This is not pleasant reading. It's not pleasant to even think about these things. It speaks to those on the wrong side of all this, the fate of God's enemies have a peek at chapter 3 and it'll give you, give you a bit of a sense of, of the gravity of that. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen fla flashing and, and charging and, and sword and glittering spear and hosts of slain, heaps of dead corpses, dead bodies without end. They, they stumble over the dead bodies. Death is coming for God's enemies. And shame too, if you glance at verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. We don't often think about this side of God, his wrath at sin, his judgment against his enemies. But that's because we're very selective in our readings. There it is in black and white. Death and shame 
for the enemies of God. And so a couple of things we should account for as we try to try to wrestle with this warning from our perspective sitting here today, assuming that God hasn't changed. Uh, first of all, what is it to be God's enemy? What is it to be God's enemy? I mean, we need to know that, don't we? Because we need to know it's not us, right? Uh, most people in the world, though, would probably claim indifference on that question, I reckon. I'm neither here nor there. But the Bible doesn't have a category for that. So we need to be very careful with this question. What is it to be God's enemy? Instinctively, if, if we were pressed, we, we, we'd probably compare ourselves to Nineveh. Point the finger at Nineveh and say, well, well I'm not like those people. I'm not like that wicked nation. Imagine there were probably people in Judah in Nahum's day who were doing that kind of thing. And we still do that kind of thing too, don't we? It's not like I'm an axe murderer or something. But Assyria is not the standard of all this. We're going to be examined against Assyria in the judgment of God. We're going to be, we're going to be examined against God's righteous demands of how he has called people to live. Assyria is just a case example. A case example. And so we oughtn't try to justify ourselves against them or against anyone else, therefore, for the same matter. But rather... I do think we should try to think through what kinds of things Assyria had done against God to, to, to become his enemies and provoke such wrath. Think about the kinds of things they were doing and see where we stand on those kinds of things ourselves. Not the measure to which Assyria might have sinned, but the principles involved. You'll see a few things later when you read through Nahum. Let's pick out a couple just quickly now. Chapter 1 and verse 9, where we just read. They had plotted against the Lord. Again in verse 11, we've already seen they plotted against the Lord. Verse 13, they oppressed and afflicted God's people. Verse 14, they committed idolatry, worshipping false gods. And in chapter 2 and verse 9, they had pillaged treasures from everyone else. It comes up again in chapter 3 and verse 1, where we see they were also bloodthirsty as they went about that. They were deceitful as they went about that. Chapter 3 and verse 4, they led others into all these things. Verse 8, they were arrogant in all these things, self-exalting, taking pride in their trade and riches. Chapter 3 and verse 16, and, and all of this, Chapter 3 and verse 19, all of this, in the final words, was, was to the great loss of everyone who had been under their hand as they went about all this. If we were to step back and try to cast a net uh, over, over all of that, Assyria was a nation of self-glorifying, other person stepping on and crushing people. They had no place for the one true God and so they lived godless lives at the expense of other people. It's easy enough to think about them and it's easy enough to see these things when the measure runs to such great lengths. Uh, but as I say, Assyria are just a case example uh, to make it easy for us to see the kind of things that displease God. But if we forget about the extent of it and think rather on those kinds of things involved here, well, they're more likely to hit home we start to realise actually there must, be, there must be enemies of God everywhere, really, if you think about it. Not necessarily nationalised like, like this ancient Assyrian example, 
But people all across this earth plot against the one true God. And they stand against and oppress his people too. They reject God. They neglect God. They live Godless lives in their pursuit of all the other things that their hearts desire. They seek power. They seek riches. They do whatever it takes in this Godless world to achieve those things, even though it means loss and hurt for others. Just the same as Assyria did, so too people today, everywhere, are very busily building the grand empire of me. It's easy to point the finger here. It's easy to point the finger out there. But this is actually just part of our sinful human nature that all of us do share. We might not afflict like Assyria, but we sure know how to take care of number one, don't we? I would put it to you that that nobody actually can, can completely distance and differentiate themselves from Assyria called out here in Nahum. And I would put it to you that God knows that truth about us all. But that he calls us to repent of that self-glory and to come to him in, in penitent humility to glorify him. There's a choice down in the subtext underneath Nahum. There's a choice that all of us must contend with between us and God. Either we will be king or he will be king. The different outcomes of that choice are kind of set out in the middle of our reading today in chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8, if you have your Bibles there. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. If we surrender to God and, and let him be king, then then we're on the right side of all this. We are the people of God. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. It may seem good for for the ungodly right now, but they will be devastated in the end. Make sure you hear that little soundbite of the gospel according to Nahum in, in those two verses. God is good. God is good. God will watch over and protect those who come to him and worship him and trust him. He will bring relief to all his people in the end. But he will bring destruction on his enemies. It's a gospel that only gets clearer and stronger as the scriptures continue. It's a gospel that got perfectly crystallized when Jesus came and and told us all of this in the flesh. What did he say? What did he call us to? That that we must repent of our self-glory. We must come to him and trust him and have him as our king. And, And that when we do that, it will change how we then relate to one another as well. Didn't he say that? And doesn't it do that when we do come to Jesus? Because when we sit under God, our heart no longer wants to glorify ourself. The more we sit under God, the less our heart wants to glorify ourself. And when our heart no longer glorifies ourself, we're starting to learn what it then means to actually love other people. 
Our lives are no longer consumed with that relentless take, 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 but with give, give, give. That is the way of Jesus, isn't it? That we let go of ourself and, and our selfish pursuits and the, the desires uh, and the empire of self that we're so uh, consumed with at everyone else's expense and we learn instead to love God and love one another. There's a choice in the subtext. There's a heavy warning as well running through Nahum for the enemies of God, those who don't sit under God and live in his love towards other people. Well, judgment is waiting for them. Judgment is waiting and their empire will fall. All that they've plundered and gathered together, chapter 2 and verse 9 says, will it all be plundered back again for God? All their riches and strength and wisdom, chapter 3 and verse 16 says, will suddenly just fly off into the sky. It will all come to naught. But as we think through Nahum, uh, from the other perspective, I guess, the, the Judah perspective, it might make us wonder, well, well, why the warning? Why the warning? Why not just destroy them now? Not just ancient Assyria, I mean. Why does God still allow the world to afflict us as his people and, and deny us and oppose us for being Christians today as they all last after their godless little empires? Why does God let it go on like so? When we look at the world and it seems that God uh, isn't doing anything to punish the ungodly, rather he is being patient with them. If you look at verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. He is powerful to act against them. He will act against them, but he is slow in his anger. And we might all praise God for that. The Apostle Peter explains in 2 Peter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But that's what Assyria needed to do all these years ago at the time of Nahum, isn't it? Repent. Repent, just as they had done about 120 years before this at the warning of destruction through the prophet Jonah, if you recall, when we were looking through Jonah. That's what all God's enemies today need to do too, isn't it? Repent. For surely God has not changed on how he sees these things. That God written out there in, in verses uh, 2 to 6 of our text, that, that is still the God of today. So hear his word through Nahum. If you reject God and are living a godless life, you too will eventually be swept away just as Nineveh was. And all you've been pursuing and building and accumulating will all be swept away too. This is what God is showing himself here to be like. He, he is patient with you but such that you repent. Eventually you will see his great power 
his righteous judgment of everyone that refuses to come under his way. Why would you presume that God will act differently towards you if you, like Nineveh, reject him and and live as his enemy, satisfying your self-glorying desires and nothing more? Think about this choice written in the subtext of Nahum and, and know as you think about that choice that you don't need to bring anything if you want to make that choice. Just the humility needed to repent. In fact, you can't bring anything with you to come under God. That's actually the old empire way of thinking about things. Think about the choice like this. While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Though you be his enemy, his love is so great that Christ died to pay for your sin if you will but repent and have it that way. So that you can make this choice to come under God freely by letting your judgment fall on him. Repent then and come to Jesus. Let go of your empire and and come under God's wing. On the flip side of Nahum, there, there is comfort here. There's great comfort here in this text for those who have come under God. And if that's you about to come to God, then there's great comfort here for you when you do. There is refuge in God for you. Refuge in God. He cares for you. And the ungodly uh, in this world may have the run of things in this world while God extends them his patience in all of this. But he has not forgotten about you. Relief will come to you in his good timing. So take heart and be not afraid. The Lord will prevail. And so if we put those two things, I guess, together, brothers and sisters, uh, what does it mean for us? We must endure all the ungodliness around us, against us, over us sometimes, pressing down on us, squeezing and trying to strip away all of our joy and blessing from us at times. We must endure and we must remember as we endure it that we too, but for the grace of God already extended to us in Christ Jesus, we too were once his enemies. and We too should have faced such destruction as Nahum here sets out. Part of our comfort as we live in the midst of our godless culture just has to be found in that gospel truth, that we remember our own unworthiness and the sheer mercy of God who saved us. And somehow from that we've we've just got to dig deep and find the patience that God has towards those he's waiting for to yet come under his grace. Shouldn't we find comfort and courage in that? Shouldn't we also follow him in that and and ready our feet with this gospel of peace in verse 15? Not just to encourage each other in the midst of such godless times, but to take it to those around us who are still perishing in this godless world. For there are yet enemies all around us whom God intends to save. Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Hold fast to that word of life internally. Uh, Understand that our comfort well, it must actually come together with God's patience for those whom he has not yet saved. That's inevitably going to mean that we are afflicted by godless people now and then. But so too here it is in the word of God that he will bring relief to us in the end. Hold fast to that word of life outwardly too. We can serve him in this, can't we? We can serve him in his desire for people to come under his wing rather than face this judgment. We can find courage to speak his word and and his gospel of salvation with it to those who are lost in the way of this world, lost out there, needing to hear this gospel and this judgment which otherwise awaits. Who knows which of them he yet plans to save? Not us. Ours is just the task to join him in this. Nahum is heavy. Did I mention that? Nahum is heavy. Uh, Probably not the stuff, let's be frank, it's not the stuff most of us want to think about when we come to church, is it? I'd ask for a show of hands. I don't need to ask for a show of hands. It's not what we want to think about when we open our own Bibles at home either, is it? But there is no gospel. There is no good news without the bad news first. And we have to be clear about the reality that we're in. And so I'd ask you to take this old scripture and and wrestle with this old scripture. We actually can't afford to let Nahum get filed away somewhere under 7th century BC. No. We must step up and into this. We must comfort and reassure and pray for God's people who are under affliction in this godless world with the truth that God will prevail in the end for all of our sufferings under evil hands. That can be hard to step into, can't it? There are actually people in this world at any given time who are under such awful affliction that we can't even process it. We're living in relative peace and security here in Perth. We must have them in our prayers, though. And we must encourage people along the way who we do meet that the Lord will prevail. We must lift the church up in our prayers that God strengthens us for what may actually be a long season of affliction still yet ahead. And I think we must learn how to respond to God's enemies, being our enemies too. I think we need to respond and and learn better how to respond the way Jesus commanded us to respond to his enemies and our enemies too. In Matthew chapter 5 he said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If God is still being patient with them, we too need to learn how to pray for his 
enemies and how to hold out this warning in Nahum of his power and his judgment against all sin that is still to come and the gospel alone that can save them from that. That can be hard to step into, can't it? We can't make anyone repent, can we? We can't make anyone choose for God. And some of those people are very dear to us, aren't they? These are hard calls. Nevertheless, whether it's one way or the other, the word of God will prevail. Did I mention Nahum left me with a heavy heart? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your scriptures and today we thank you for even this bleak one in Nahum. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us in our faith. Comfort us, Father, in our afflictions when we do experience them. Help us, Father, that we would not be so overwhelmed by the godless culture around us today. Give us clarity on this, that you are our refuge and our help. We pray too, Father, for those in the world who are suffering much more affliction than we can even imagine. We pray for them, Father, that they too would discover these truths of your word, that your word will prevail and you will deliver your people in the end. Father, we pray too for those who are still your enemies. We pray that your gospel would go forth to them and that it would even happen by our hands and feet, humble as they are, and that you would bring people into the truth of your word, that all are by nature your enemy, but that you have done what satisfies your wrath against sin. Father, we pray, please, cause to believe in you all whom you would save by the power of this same gospel that saved us, Two. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.